0: He'd been traveling with Silas and Timothy, and at times even Luke, the author of Acts himself, because he's narrating sometimes in the first person. However, as he moves now, St. Paul, from Athens to Corinth, we find him uh, sending Timothy and Silas back through Macedonia to encourage the churches that he had planted there. And so he arrives in Corinth alone. So what is the first thing that St. Paul does. He looks for teammates. Read with me in Acts chapter 18, starting in verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, that was the emperor, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. According to several extra-biblical sources, Corinth was actually an ancient center for the Jews of the Roman diaspora. So it's little wonder that when Paul gets there, he finds Jews like Aquila and Priscilla, who were expelled from Rome, and it's no wonder that he also finds a thriving synagogue. Now, the text makes no mention of Paul reasoning with Aquila and Priscilla, which leads many scholars to conclude that they were likely already believers in Jesus as their Messiah. In fact, there are ancient sources that held that they were deacons in the church, both of them. This, coupled with their sharing of the same trade, made them perfect companions and strategic partners for Paul's ministry in Corinth, which also explains his primary motivation for taking back up the trade of tent-making. You may or may not know that every Jewish boy was required to learn a trade. Often they would learn it from their father, So just like Jesus himself was taught to be a carpenter by his earthly father, Joseph, clearly somewhere along the line, uh, whether it was from his uh, own father or an uncle or what have you, St. Paul learned the trade of making tents from boyhood. But we also know that St. Paul was a rabbinical student of one of the greatest rabbis in history, literally. Which means that while he learned the rudiments of his trade, Paul did not likely ever go on to, like, the journeyman or master level of that trade because it was not uncommon for Jewish boys who showed promise in the study of the Torah, the Old Testament law, to actually abandon that trade and go full-time to school pretty much for the rest of their lives, which was the case for St. Paul. So it's interesting to me that in some Christian circles, tent-making has become synonymous with priests and pastors exercising some kind of vocation outside the church to support themselves and their families. And sadly, in our own day, especially in the strong church-planting culture of our own movement, Tentmaker has become justification for not having to financially support a person in ministry. But interestingly enough, this is the only time that we read about Paul spending a significant amount of time supporting himself and only until his companions show up in verse 5 with a financial gift from the churches of Macedonia. Because after that, verse 5 tells us, he was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. In other words, he transitioned back into full-time preaching. So what are we to make of this tent-making stint on St. Paul's part? Were, was there a financial motivation here? Sort of but not in the sense that we might be thinking about it. It's not likely that Paul was broke when he got to Corinth. He had come directly from his new Athenian church, and if that fit the pattern of pretty much the entire rest of the book of Acts, they probably sent him off with a fairly sizable gift to sustain him as he went on to the next uh, leg of his journey. So he probably didn't jump right into this old boyhood trade because he was broke. We do know from the letters to the Corinthians that money was a particular kind of pitfall of the city of Corinth and that the church fell right into that pit along with the rest of their culture. And so Paul, whether exercising godly discernment or being directly led by the Spirit of God, plies his trade in this place to keep from relying on the tithes and offerings of the local believers so that he can come back to them later and say in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, "...do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision." What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. But even this, I would suggest, is not the primary reason why St. Paul took up canvas and needle and began making tents again. The primary reason Paul exercised his trade was as a way to further connect with Aquila and Priscilla. That was their business. They were potential partners in gospel ministry. And so as a way to connect with them, be useful to them, and and probably to free them up a little bit so that they could partner with him in the gospel business, he begins exercising these skills that he had learned in boyhood. He helps them out around the shop. Because for St. Paul, living and sharing the reality of Jesus had to be a team sport. Friends, in our contemporary culture that sees communities fragmenting, even individuals fragmenting and becoming alienated from themselves, to say nothing of alienated from community, especially here in the Mountain West where we've been nurtured on generations of that rugged individualism, we see the detrimental effects of isolation. The statistics on the number of people seeking treatment for uh, depression are at an all-time high. The Larimer County suicide rate continues to go through the roof. One of the primary places where we, as the Church of Jesus Christ, can stand out and proclaim a different, better, more loving, and compassionate way of living, is simply by committing again and again. To living in community. Now, I'll be honest, I have been burned by community. I have been burned by Christian community. It is not easy, it's hard work and sometimes very, very painful. But it is also the only way forward as a Christ centered community if we really are seeking to be steeped in the ancient scriptures and the wisdom of Jesus. So what does that mean for us? Well, first it means that we have to choose to trust one another. Choose to let ourselves be vulnerable with one another. If I'm struggling, I should be able to let my guard down and tell somebody about it. When you crash and burn, you need to know that I, your priest, am here to hear your confession and help set you back on the path of grace. When you're struggling with a big life decision, you need to know that there are people here in your small group who are available at the back of the church every Sunday morning or on our intercessory prayer team who are happy to talk and listen and pray for you and with you. When your family's facing a challenging time, there are people here that want to make you food. There are people here that might want to bring you a prayer shawl as sort of a tangible token of God's love for you. They want to be the hands and feet of Christ to you. Some of you have been around longer, may have heard me tell this story before, but our senior year of seminary, we hit a very difficult time financially. Some of the people who had been supporting us financially over these three years of preparation for parish ministry kind of you know fell off in the natural course of things kind of fell off in their monthly support of us by the third year our personal savings were gone and before long we found ourselves in a situation where we literally didn't even know where groceries were going to come the following week now being english and dutch i kept it to myself kept a stiff upper lip and trusted that God would provide, somehow. And Sarah joined me in that posture until one Saturday morning when the spouses of seminarians group was meeting and they went around, as they always did, asking one another for prayer requests. And it all came out. That's when Sarah broke down and shared the situation that we were in. Darn it, that is not the English or Dutch way but after all, it is the Jesus way. And that following week, we had cash left anonymously in our on-campus mailbox. We had a fellow student who had something crazy like five kids of his own show up with two bags of groceries. We went through our own cupboards and looked at what we could spare, and here, here it is. We experienced this remarkable outpouring of generosity and love. We were encouraged in our pursuit of gospel ministry. And we were able to move forward. Why? Because my dear wife wouldn't let me isolate in the culturally ingrained ways that I had always known. We were vulnerable with the community, and the community supported us. Friends, following Jesus is not an individual sport. It is a team exercise. We, the church, need you and your gifts if we are to be what Christ intends us to be. And like it or not, you need us in your corner because we are all members one of another. That's what we celebrate on this feast of all saints, the resurrection feast in which we remember and the church invites us to remember the holy ones who have gone before us, leaving us an example in the faith to follow. The memory of men and women of God who have gone before us is the ultimate affirmation that we are not alone in this. That following Christ is not an individual sport. We are made to be a part of a team, a team that has a long, rich heritage. A team that surrounds us with a great cloud of witnesses, both in heaven and on earth, supporting us, cheering us on, helping us bear the burden of living under the lordship of Jesus Christ. We read on in Acts chapter 18 about Paul's ministry after his usual companions arrived. Verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles." And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. (laughs) Love this detail. His house was next door to the synagogue. Now a couple of features that we need to talk about here. Notice the response of the Jewish opponents to Paul's message, first of all. They're at least more civil than what Paul has faced in other places. He's not, you know, uh, no no riots are incited to get him out of town. He's not beaten. He's not stoned and left for dead. They just reject his message. And so note St. Paul's response to them. He does just as the prophets had done before him, just as Jesus himself taught when he sent out the twelve two-by-two to preach the kingdom in the towns and villages around Galilee. Remember that at all? In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says to his disciples, And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. It was a prophetic gesture. A prophetic gesture showing the people that Paul is no longer responsible. He has fulfilled his duty in proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah to them. The message is now on their heads in terms of responsibility to respond or not. But notice also how Paul lives into the other side of this teaching of Jesus as well. He seeks the worthy sons of peace, in this case, Titius Justice. And he stays in that house. This sense of the fulfilling of Jesus' words is strengthened by the word that Paul receives from the Lord, this encouragement in verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision: Do not be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Now, I don't think that Paul chose Titius' house just to kind of get the Jews' goat, right? Because it happened to be right next door to the synagogue. If anything, I think the text suggests that he was a bit uncomfortable locating right next door to the opposition. Lord, couldn't you provide a house of peace like on the other side of town, right? And so the Lord reassures him, keep speaking my word. Stay in this house, essentially. And then this powerful statement, I have many people in this city, or I have many in this city who are my people. How are we to understand what that means? Clearly, on one level, between the persons who have already been named, Priscilla and Aquila, Titius, it was evident that the foundation for a church existed here. But I believe it's more than that. Because equally clear from the fact that Paul will spend 18 months here, the second longest stay of anywhere uh, apart from Ephesus, it's clear that there was plenty of work for him to do there. And we know that Paul's primary work was the apostolic ministry of preaching Christ and establishing the church. Once that initial work was done, he tended to appoint elders over the new church and then move on, you know, encouraging that church either from afar through his letters or sometimes by coming back around through town or even sending, like we already saw, uh, Silas and Timothy, sending ministry partners to encourage them. And so that leaves us to conclude that there was a lot of work to be done in establishing the church here in Corinth. There were a lot of divine appointments that the Lord had for Paul to follow up on. Lots of conversations, preaching opportunities, and presumably lots of conversions. Why? Because God was already hard at work in the hearts and lives of people in Corinth, And Paul simply came alongside to join what God was doing there. For those of you who are here, you might remember that premise from a few weeks ago. I quoted Dr. Henry Blackaby, who taught that to experience God is to look for where he is at work and then seek to join him in it. To look for where God's already working and simply seek to join him in it. That's what the Lord was inviting Paul to here. I'm already at work. I have many in this city who are my people, whose hearts I've been already moving in. Look for them, because I have plenty for you to do. Join me in what I'm already doing. That's the Lord's invitation to St. Paul, and it's his invitation to us, his church, today as well. Jesus already has people in this city Jesus has people in Wellington, in Windsor, in Berthoud, in Loveland. Our job, like St. Paul's, is simply to look for what God is doing and then seek to join Him in it. That can start as simply as a daily discipline of asking each morning, Lord, would you please give me the eyes to see what you're doing today and the faith to follow you in it? Show me where you want me to join you today. You may be amazed by the opportunities to share simple acts of kindness, to share words of encouragement, small gestures that make a big difference in the life of the recipient. And you may be amazed what it does in you, how it begins to shape and and reshape you when you engage in those simple acts with intention. Because it's exciting to join God in what he's doing. It encourages our own faith. When we see how God answers that simple prayer, Lord, give me the eyes to see what you're doing and the faith to follow you there. Show me what I can do today. And then he does. It's exciting. Following Jesus is a team sport and you are teamed with these these brothers and sisters sitting in this room with you this morning. But we are all teamed together with Jesus himself to participate with him in what he is doing. To be his gospel presence together in the gospel deficient, fragmented, isolated areas that he invites us to. Let's pray for his grace in doing that work. Gracious Lord, it is an affirmation of faith to say we trust that you are at work. That you are at work in our communities, that you are at work in our lives, that you are at work in this church. Lord, we just want to see what you're doing so that we can participate in it. Lord, give us those eyes of faith. Give us that renewed sense of excitement. About joining you, the eternal God of the universe, in what you want to do in little old Northern Colorado, in my life, in my family. Lord, all this is the work of your spirit. And so it is to you that we offer up these prayers and offer up ourselves. Follow where you lead. And so it's in your name that we pray, our Lord, our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.